I came across a funny sign uh, this week. wanted to share it with you because I thought it was germane to what we're going to be talking about uh, this morning. But um, the sign says, if you can't see it, it says that this ride only stops in an emergency. Crying is not an emergency. And I feel like there is a lot of dads who could relate to this, uh, whether it's on a trip or whatever it would be. I thought that was, uh, that was funny. But I will tell you that even though I'm, I'm not a big crier, I, as I get older, the more I realize the value of a good cry and, and the tears that, that we do shed at times. Uh, one Jewish proverb says this, What soap is for the body, tears are for the soul. And crying does have some value in our lives. And scientists will tell you this, that there is a, a fundamental difference from a physiological standpoint. While our tears are only, you know, mostly water and salt, there is a, there is a fundamental difference between tears that result from doing something like cutting up onions, which if any of you have any ideas as to how not to cry when you're cutting up onions, you can let my wife know because she's always looking for uh, new ways to, to not shed tears when she's cutting onions. Uh, maybe there's nothing you can do, but there's a fundamental difference between shedding tears when you're cutting up onions and shedding tears when you are joyful or sad or fearful. And it's thought that our emotional tears may actually be our body's way of kind of removing chemicals built up by stress and anxiety and, and other things that we experience. When I think about this idea of, of crying, though, I, I always go back to a quote that um, was a, a, one that always sticks in my mind uh, by a guy named Jim Valvano. Some of you may recognize that name. Uh, Jim Valvano was a pretty successful college basketball coach. Uh, he coached for NC State, won a national championship, uh, but he got a pretty rare form of cancer uh, at the age of 46 and died 10 months later. But before he died, in between when the diagnosis and we got really, really bad and, and when um, he, he actually passed, he gave a speech on a, in a sports awards uh, show. And here's what he said. He said, to me, there are three things. Some of you may remember this quote. He said, to me, there are three things we all should do every day. We should do this every day of our lives. Number one is laugh. You should laugh every day. Number two is think. You should spend some time in thought. And number three is you should have your emotions move to tears. Could be happiness or joy. Just think about it. If you laugh, you think, and you cry, that's a full day. That's a heck of a day. And that is a heck of a day. That's a full day if you get those three things in. And all this talk about crying brings us to our lesson today. We'll be, we've been in the midst of a series uh, entitled The Good Life, in which we're walking through Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we come to uh, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. We looked at verse 3 last week. We're going to look at verse 4 this week. And here's what Jesus says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be Comforted. Now, while there is something to be said for a good cry, when Jesus talks about mourning here, he's not just talking about crying, although crying can certainly be an expression of mourning. But the truth is, we can cry over pretty much anything, right? We can cry over a movie. We can cry over our favorite sports team not winning the game. We can cry over not having our coffee in the morning and not having all that we need to start the day. We can cry over spilt milk, as the saying often goes. But mourning is, is something different. It refers to a deep 
sadness that's rooted in a profound loss, specifically a loss that we cannot fix and that we can't undo in and of ourselves. We can go to another movie, uh, maybe a comedy or something. We can talk about how our favorite sports team will be better next year and hope for the best. We can get another cup of coffee, but there are some things that we encounter in our world and in our lives that just cannot be undone, that we just cannot move past in and of ourselves. There are some broken things that just can't be fixed. There are some situations that just cannot be reversed in and of ourselves. And when we mourn, in many ways, what Jesus is talking about here, it's something that's tied to the very first beatitude that we looked at last week, to the poor in spirit that we looked at last week. It's tied to this awareness that we are profoundly broken and our world is profoundly broken in ways that are beyond our resources to fix in and of ourselves or to undo or to repair. And don't forget what Jesus is doing right before he stands up and, and, and teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Before he preaches this sermon, he heals all of these people in Matthew chapter 4, right? The demonically possessed, the, the diseased, the sick, those who are suffering severe pain, those who are having seizures, the paralyzed, all of these people who are dealing with things that they cannot fix in their life, Jesus heals them. And we spent some time talking about the world of the sick and the chronically ill in Jesus' day last week. The, the, the world of those who are dealing with illnesses that they could not fix. And, and how, you know, when, when they come to Jesus, there, there are so many things that are going on. How their, their bodies and minds weren't the only things that were broken, but their spirits were often broken as well. They weren't just dealing with physical or, or mental pain. They were also dealing with a financial brokenness. They were also dealing with being ostracized and, 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 and isolated because that's what you often did with the sick and the disease. And on top of it all, in the ancient world, there was this thought that if you were, were, were experiencing suffering or illness or, or, or chronically you know, sick, that was a punishment from God because of your sin or the sins of your parents or something you had done and that God had turned his back on you. And so the point is, these people are dealing with a profound sense of brokenness and loss on so many levels, a loss and a brokenness that they weren't going to be able to fix in and of themselves. And yet what Jesus does when he shows up on the scene and begins to heal everyone at the end of Matthew chapter 4 is bring the kingdom of heaven to the poor in spirit to those who are broken beyond their ability to fix themselves, their ability to repair their own lives and their condition. Jesus, in essence, brings comfort to those who were mourning over a condition that they couldn't fix or undo. And so when Jesus stands up and he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, just as he did with the poor in spirit, he's providing another commentary on what it is that he had just done. And in making this commentary about the mourn, those who mourn and those who are um, poor in spirit and, and that they, theirs is the kingdom of heaven for those who are poor in spirit and that those who, who mourn will be comforted, he wants his disciples to learn something about his nature and his kingdom right at that moment so that they can be faithful representatives of his kingdom moving forward. And one of the reasons why what he has to say about mourning and, and comfort, I think, is such a big deal. And we still kind of have this mindset towards it today, towards mourning and grief and, and, and certain things. I mean, you look at what is written into our Constitution, right? We all have uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of what? Happiness. That's what we are pursuing at all costs. That's what we want to aim 
towards. And it was not that much different in the day and age that Jesus was teaching and preaching. In, in Greek and, and Roman literature and culture of the day, mourning and, 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 you know, and, and showing that grief, that, that was very much disapproved of in that culture. Grief was, was something that should be buried. Those things were, were looked down upon because the way the Greeks and the Romans saw it, to mourn was really a waste of time. It it indicated a refusal to accept their fate from the gods or even a a lack of faith on their part to to, trust in the gods and what their plan was. And and so what Jesus has to say about mourning right smack dab in the middle of the Roman Empire was really incredibly counter-cultural because he makes it clear here that there's a place in his kingdom for those who mourn. Question is why though? What, what, what does that have to do with us as followers of Jesus Christ? Well, it could be that to Jesus, mourning doesn't necessarily testify to a lack of faith in the gods, or in this case, in the king, but rather it testifies to one's alignment with the king and his kingdom. Mourning, really, here in this context of what Jesus is talking about, testifies to our alignment with the king and his kingdom. Let me explain what I mean. What I mean. Remember, Jesus is bringing the kingdom of heaven to bear on a world that's broken beyond its capacity to heal itself. And to mourn is to recognize that brokenness. It's not simply crying over worldly sorrows, although we'll we'll talk about how that, that still does have something to bear on those things and the things that we experience and what we can still learn from this. But to mourn here in this context is really to mourn over our sinful condition. And over the brokenness of our world and the brokenness of the things that we see around it. To mourn is to recognize those things and to be touched by it, to be influenced by it, to be challenged by it in a way that makes us move forward and do something about it. To not be complacent about things, but to recognize our role in bringing about God's healing and God's comfort and tapping into that and refusing to settle for the brokenness that we see in our world. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, the prophets had to occasionally challenge the people of God who had gotten too complacent and out of touch with their own brokenness and the brokenness of the world around them. For instance, there's a passage in, in Amos. This is not the only one, but there's a passage in Amos chapter 6. And listen to what the Lord says through uh, the prophet Amos. He says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But, here's the key, you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. You don't, you're not grieving over the things that you need to be grieving. You're too busy enjoying all these other things without recognizing what's most important. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. And in this case, when it comes to Amos and the people that he was speaking to, there is a sense in which mourning over the brokenness of the world around them isn't an absence of faith at all, but rather it's a testimony of alignment with the king and his priorities. And here in Amos, the king says to his people, your hearts aren't aligned with me because you're not mourning over the things that you need to be mourning over, the things that I would mourn over. It reminds me of what one theologian wrote and 
This was a man who actually lost his son in, in a horrible hiking accident. And it's interesting how he describes mourners. He calls them the aching visionaries. He says, they are the ones who are deeply and personally impacted by the brokenness of the world. And they envision a different world through their tears, even crying out for a different world. In other words, the mourners are those who recognize that the world isn't the way it should be. They have a vision for something better, and they long for the time when God will make all things new. I think you could even argue that mourning even has a place in helping to bring about a better world and a different world. You know, we, we may not be able to affect what's happened in the past, but we can, through how we mourn and the things that we mourn over, actually make a difference for others in the future. Let me give you some examples of this. I've seen grieving parents who have lost children themselves in the past then be able to give counsel and encouragement to those who are going through something similar in their own lives in the present, and not just locally, but also globally, and making a difference on a global scale. I've seen people who have lost and mourned over years of, of, of their lives lost to substance abuse, alcohol and drug abuse, whatever it may be, who have come clean and then been able to invest themselves in other people who are going through those same things, right? They, they mourned over what they experienced, but that mourning drove them to bring about a change and help other people. I, I've seen, as I think about kind of right to life week and, and, and things that have been you know, going on in, in, in our world, I, I know of women who have mourned over their decision to have an abortion, be compelled to help other women reconsider that decision to help those who, who, are, who are going through that decision or maybe even on the back end, those who have made that decision to have abortion. Counsel them into in, in moving forward and, and healing in, in whatever ways that they can. And, and so many other examples of people who have, who have mourned over what they've gone through in a way that's challenged them to move forward and to help others. And so we can see that mourning does have a place in the kingdom of God. It serves a purpose. It shouldn't be buried. It should be released, but at the same time, it shouldn't rule. And this is where the second half of Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 comes into play. He says, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Jesus says that yes, there is a place for mourning in his kingdom, but he also promises that his reign will make a difference for those who mourn. The question is, how? Well, this really brings me to two fundamental affirmations that we're going to talk about and spend the rest of our time this morning talking about when it comes to the king and his kingdom that I really want us to take away. And so, you know, how much time do we spend on, you know, this idea? Again, the fundamental thing I want you to get out of this is this understanding of mourning, what it is that we're mourning over. It's not just a, a mourning over things that we're going through, although, again, there are some, some ramifications for that. But it's understanding we are mourning over our sin. We're mourning over the brokenness of our lives. We're recognizing that this world and our lives isn't the way it should be. So how do we move forward? And what offer or what things does God have to offer for us? And the first, I think, affirmation that I want to share with you is this. Where there is profound loss, God is there. Where there is profound brokenness and loss when it comes to our sin, when it comes to the brokenness of our world, even when it comes to the losses that we experience in those earthly realms and earthly sorrows, God is there. 
As I said earlier, in the ancient world, people viewed brokenness and loss as a punishment from God. That, that, that God was turning his back on you, that he didn't want anything to do with you because of something you had done, and so you are being punished for your brokenness, punished for, punished for your, your, your sin or whatever it may have been in your life. Whatever you were experiencing was a punishment from God. But Jesus' words in verse 4 of Matthew chapter 5 make it crystal clear that God hasn't distanced himself from you. And that's the reason why you're experiencing your brokenness or your loss. If anything, he's making it clear that God has come near to us in the midst of our brokenness and our loss. And ultimately, as the life of this King Jesus plays out, we find out not just him drawing near to us in our brokenness and our loss, but actually we find him identifying with us in our brokenness and our loss. As Isaiah chapter 53 verse 3 says, he was despised and rejected by mankind a man of suffering and familiar with pain. I think of these words of author and theologian William Willimon when I think about this idea of of suffering and what Jesus went through and how it's a picture for us. I I think these words fit well with what we're, we're talking about this morning. Here's what he writes. He says, Christians do not believe that we have an answer to the tragedies of life, but rather that we ha- what we have is a God who in Jesus Christ enters tragedy, stands with us, and makes a way through. The cross of Christ is not an answer or a reason for the hurt that happens in life. It's something even better. The cross is a sign that God is with us, particularly in the dark times. And from the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount all the way to the cross, the king makes it very clear that where there is profound loss, God is there. And I think this has implications for us in a couple of different ways. First, it has implications for us when it comes to how we respond in times of our own profound brokenness and loss. What are we looking to? What are we trying to fill that that hole in our lives with? Will we look for God in the midst of those times? Will we look for him in the midst of our mourning and our suffering and our brokenness and our loss? One of the reasons why I'm calling this series The Good Life is because I truly believe that there is wisdom to be had in these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 and all throughout his words, but specifically here in Matthew chapter 5. There's words of wisdom that we can apply to our lives that will end up making our lives good, better, you know, the world has so many defini- definitions for how, you know, what, what's good, you know, and what, what's going to be fulfilling. And, and these words of Jesus, specifically here in Matthew chapter 5, are meant to be good for your life. The best life that you can have. And there's a quality of life that comes with that. And when we live that out, the byproduct is that it's a good life. But having said that, it doesn't mean that by living this good life that somehow we're going to be insulated from experiencing loss and brokenness and heartache. That if you live the Christian life, that you're not going to have to deal with those things, right? Everything's going to be roses and everything is going to be perfect once you give your life to Jesus and you live that out. Everything's going to be great and grand. God does not promise that. But what God does promise is that when we do experience profound loss, He will be with us. And he'll provide a way through. I think about what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. You know, as I think about this idea of God being our comforter, 
Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with uh, what is called the vice funds. Uh, it's a certain mutual fund called vice funds. I don't know how many of you are familiar with that. Sometimes it's called barrier fund as well because it includes defense. But uh, it's basically a mutual fund that invests in companies that are investing in and significantly involved in uh, the tobacco and gambling and alcohol industries. And essentially it's built on the philosophy that bad habits don't change. Whether it's good times or bad times, bad habits don't change. We're still going to be doing those things. And while people may give themselves over to bad habits and celebrating the good times, uh, when bad times come along, uh, the truth is people don't leave their bad habits. We still invest in those things. In fact, in many ways, they run deeper into those bad habits and substance abuse problems because they're looking for comfort in the midst of difficult times. And we've seen that to be true over the last couple of years, especially as we're dealing with what we've been dealing with. And the sad irony is that what many turn to in order to bring comfort in profound seasons of loss They wind up finding that those things that they turn to bring comfort only push them deeper down a road of chaos and destruction. And so the question is, what are we going to do when we experience those times of profound loss? Will we look to other things and and other avenues to bring comfort, to bring fulfillment? Or will we look to God to bring comfort in the midst of our loss? But God being where profound loss is, also has, I think, implications for how we respond to others in times of their profound loss. Let me ask you a question. If where God is, or if where profound loss is, God is there, what does that tell you about what we as the people of God ought to be about? If God is where profound loss is, what does that tell us about where we need to be. I believe it tells us that where we need to be is where profound loss is, where, where there's brokenness, where there's loss, where there's damage, where there's needing of repair. We need to be in those places and filling in the gaps. It tells me that the people of God don't run from where there's profound loss, but we go to it. We look to, to fill it and repair it only by the power of God. We read earlier in, in uh, first Corinthians chapter, or 2 Corinthians chapter 1 what Paul says in verses 3 and 4 that our God is the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles. But then listen to what he goes on to say in the last half of verse 4. So that, what? We can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. And yet the tendency for so many is when we confront and encounter profound loss and brokenness in our world is, is to kind of shy away from it. To, to look away from it, to, to try not to think about it, when in fact, we're the ones with the resources to make a difference when people are dealing with profound loss. One of those resources is your story. And that's why I would challenge you, what, what, think about what is your story? What is your testimony? What has God done in your life? And be able to verbalize that with the people around you. The story of your own sin, the story of your own struggles and and brokenness and how God was present in the midst of it. Be able to share that with other people. But a second and even greater resource that we have is that of the Holy Spirit. 
who, by the way, is called the Comforter, a counselor in John chapter 14, verse 26. And so the Comforter comes, and he often transcends words, which is why, you know, one of the greatest lessons I've learned is, is sometimes I still struggle with this in other parts of my life, but when someone's going through something very difficult, sometimes the best thing you can do is just shut your mouth and be present and, just, and, and let the, the Holy Spirit bring comfort your presence is, is better than anything you can often say sometimes because there's a comfort in just being with people when they're dealing with those times. And so the question for each of us is, if we have the resources to make a difference in the world with those dealing with profound loss, why in the world would we run away from it? Why wouldn't we run toward it. Maybe the answer is that so often our tendency is to rely more on our comfort zones for comfort than to rely on God for our comfort. It's comfortable to go where we are comfortable, and it's uncomfortable to go where we are uncomfortable, right? I know you're looking for that kind of deep analysis, but we don't like going where we are not comfortable going, and it's uncomfortable going to where there are places of profound loss. We often feel helpless. We feel like we don't know the answers, and you don't, and you are. But God is not, and there is a comforter with us and moving to help us make a difference in those times and those places and with those people dealing with profound loss because God is one who draws near to those who are dealing with profound loss. This leads me to a second affirmation about the king and his kingdom. Not only is where there is profound loss, God is there, but where God is, there will be comfort. Where God is, there will be comfort. I, I read something several years ago that really stuck with me in regard to this thinking about this idea of, of, of the comfort that God brings. You know, sometimes we just think of like, um, we, were, we were with some friends yesterday and, and uh, she was talking about how um, just sitting up and curling by the fire, right? You know, and maybe reading a good book or just staying. Like that, we, we sometimes think of, of very shallow realms of, of comfort. But I love this description of, of the comfort that God brings. Here's what, what, he, what it said. He said, the thing with God's comfort is that it's not quite comfort in the way we usually think of comfort. God's comfort is comfort with strength in it. God's comfort has some teeth in it. God's comfort has the capacity to cut into the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, to make a difference in the midst of the morning, to sustain us through our morning, and eventually, as Psalm 30 says, to turn our morning into dancing, to turn our morning into, into a new morning, M-O-R-I-N-G, and a new day. Last week I mentioned that word blessed is the word Greek word makarios, which means joyful or even uh, to be envied. In other words, you and I, when we are, ble- we, we are blessed because we are in, an, in a position that is to be envied because we are working with and participating in and God is working through us to bring deliverance and salvation and provision. And certainly I know that there are those who have experienced great loss. Maybe even right now you're going through some difficult times. And maybe part of what you're saying is, I know God brings comfort, right? I I, I know I'll, I'll affirm everything you've talked about this morning. And I know that he says he'll turn my morning into dancing, but I'm not quite on the dance floor yet. 
I'm still struggling with some of that right now. And I get that. And I think there's got to be movement forward, but, but I get that. In fact, I'm mindful of, of Jesus' words. Listen to what he says again. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. There's an element where it's in the present, but there's also a bigger element where the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is probably not going to come in this life. And while there's a comfort that God can bring in the present, it is but a shadow of the taste of the future and the ultimate comfort that lies ahead. To put it another way, and this is in your notes, God's comfort in the meantime sustains us while we wait for ultimate and complete deliverance and salvation at the end of time. I like how the message translation puts Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. It says, You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. Because it is in our mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, that we truly recognize the only one who can bring the comfort we truly need. I think about one of my favorite passages in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 22 and 23. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. And it's in him and only in him that true comfort, true blessing lies. And where even in the midst of our mourning, new mercies and new mornings await.